Uh, hey, you guys, great to be with you. Um, uh, oh, I, it's just, that's just very funny, Mike. I, you're the best. Mike was so worried about that transition, and it's never done. He, see, he's like, okay, three times was like cute that, you know, it's like funny. We weren't able to do that, but every time I get up there, I have no idea how to bring you up, and I'm like, it'll be fine. He's totally embarrassed. You give him a hard time after church, that'd be great. Um, <clears throat> anyway, very good to be with you guys. I am, um, we, we are in this series called The Beautiful Mess, and I, I do want to tell you, I told you last week, if, but not everybody was here last week. And I realized our timing of this talk with like having the youngest audience possible with all the baby dedications is the worst ever. Because I told you like last week, okay, last week's message is like a PG-11 message. You're probably going to have to answer some questions to some kids, probably fifth and sixth grade. They're going to be like, what? If they were in here, didn't get checked into our kids program. They're going to be like, what was that about? This week, your parents, just want to let you know, you're going to have to answer some incredibly difficult questions if you decided to keep your kids in the room today. So I just want to let you know. Um, we're going to talk about sex again, but it's going to be a little bit more specific and with a little bit more detail. If you're like, I don't know if I want my third grader in here for that, it'd probably be a good time to like go ahead and say, you know what, let's go check out that kids program. I heard it's pretty good. If you haven't been there yet, it's awesome, okay? So you've been warned. Hopefully you knew that already. And again, our timing could not have been worse about <laughs> with having all the like new folks and family and you know everybody coming in, all these little kids and cousins and stuff, and we're doing baby dedications. Let's talk about sex in really detailed terms. So Sorry, that's our, that's our fault. It's my fault. I'll take it. It's my fault. Um, but in this series, this beautiful mess series, we've been walking through it. Um, you know, what we said is this, that, um, you know, relationships are critical. Um, they are, they are the, the greatest, most wonderful thing we could have in our lives. And yet, because all of our relationships are governed by human beings, they are necessarily then messy as well. And so our, our series called The Beautiful Mess is walking through what all of these relationships then look like and what they're all about. And so... Um, we're going to pray and we'll jump into the message. We'll get people all stall a little bit longer to get people a chance to consider who's going to take the kid out to go to the children's program. And then we'll get started. So let's pray, you guys. Father, we are um, we're grateful that we get to, to come to a church where we can talk about real stuff. We're grateful that, um, that you meet us here. Jesus, we know that um, a lot of us have... Um, a mixed, receive mixed messages about sexuality, about sex. We have confusion. We have strong feelings. We have questions. Jesus, we know that no matter what we could accomplish in the next, you know, few minutes as a conversation as a church probably wouldn't be enough. Father, we also acknowledge that no one in here has every single answer and nobody has everything figured out. Father, we acknowledge that we are all people who are a work in progress, all of us with various public and various private struggles. And Jesus, we need you. We need your restoring power. We need your grace. Um, we need your presence to be among us and to be known. And so for just a moment, as is our custom, we just pause and ask God that you would speak to us, that you would allow us maybe for the only time in our week to pause and to exhale in the stillness. So Father, speak to us just for just a moment. Jesus, we seek your wholeness, your completeness, that you would make us to be the people you intended us to be, and that we would have grace for those people who are around us who are also work in progress like us. And so, Father, speak to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Um, okay, we're going to try something. I don't know if this is going to work. We're, we're, the, the, the technology is, is new and fresh and amazing, and sometimes that means we're going to mess it up. Uh, so I'm going to try and draw something on this. If this is a device. I believe you've heard of them. They're called iPads. Um, so let's see. This, is this going to work, Mikey? I'm, I'm, I'm nervous here. It's not promising. There it is. Cool. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll walk up. Just leave that up there for a sec. Um, one of the things I want to make sure we catch, some of you guys weren't here last week, it's really critical that you catch what I'm about to sort of draw or put on the screen here so that everything else is framed correctly. Like I said earlier, I, I don't think we could talk about everything that we need to talk about in, in you know, just this short amount of time when, we, when it comes to sex, but I want to at least give us some frame. So um, last week I mentioned this. I don't know which, where's the top? There's the bottom. Okay, so there we go. Shunk. Okay. I mentioned this last week, which is um, kind of the way we have to think about all of the, the nature of what, what we do as a church, but it has particular implications when we talk about sex. All right, so first is this. Um, when we talk about relationships, we're talking about, um, at least in some level, our identity. Is that even on the screen? Hooray. Okay. Um, now, out of our identity, that, uh, what shapes our identity is a lot of things. Our family of origin, our, uh, our, our race, our gender, our history, our mistakes, the victories, whatever. There's all kinds of things that... It, pour into our identity, all the messages we received in our, from our childhood. Now, out of that, out of our identity, out of how we see ourselves in the world, flows our behavior. And as a church, it's our, you know, what we do is, you know, a lot of times people think that the church's job is to figure out how to modify people's behavior. Like, I just got to get my husband into church so he could just stop doing some things and he can just change his behavior, right? Or I got to get my kid into church, right? Whatever it is, that the primary goal of the church is to modify people's bad behavior. I just want to make sure you understand, that's not the primary goal, okay? The primary goal is what we talk about is, we believe that the primary goal is to give people access. Is that all still on the screen? Yeah, good. To give people access to God. We want to give, we want to create the smoothest possible path to, path to God that we can. Meaning that... A lot of people have had the impression, people who come to church, people who have been to church, people who grew up in the church have the impression that if I have the right behavior, if my behavior is awesome, then I can call myself, I can, I can call myself a righteous person or a good enough person who then has access to God. That's how a lot of people grew up in the church. Still a lot of us still have that impression. People aren't come here for a while, then they'll come back and they'll see me and I know that they feel like I know what they did. I talked about this last week. They look at me like, you know what I did and I have no idea what you did. But you look at me like, you know, and I know and I'm sorry. And I'm like, I don't know, but you look guilty. <laughs> and you haven't been here in a while, whatever it is, and your assumption is, I had, to get, I had to go through this period of doing something crazy and then once I kind of got my behavior right again, then I became a right enough person that I could come back to church. A lot of people have this impression, okay? Now, let me tell you what Jesus is all about. In fact, all of Jesus' opponents, the religious leaders, agreed with that kind of idea. Everybody get your act together, we'll shape us into right people, and then we'll go have access to God. With me? What Jesus says is, no, 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 no. Here's Jesus, which is, who is also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus, is, that's the world's worst writing, but Jesus is, Jesus is among people who are far from God, such that he shapes their identity, and out of their identity, there's, their behavior is shaped. Does that make sense? So, for a lot of us, when we talk about sexuality, there is a sense about us that says, I've made bad choices, I've been a part of some things, or there's a history I have here, there's a story, or there's an opinion, whatever else it might be, and that's prohibiting my access from God. It's just not true. I want you to understand as we talk about this stuff and as we get really specific, some of you are going to go, oh no, I'm not allowed to be here, whatever. I just want you to know that's not true. And if anybody in this room gives you a sense that you're not supposed to be here, that's not true. 
We believe that every single person should have unlimited, unrestricted access to Jesus. And it is the job of the church, Jesus calls it the Great Commission, that everybody would have access to Jesus. That's it. And if there's any obstacle to Jesus, let it be Jesus himself. Cool? Everybody got it? Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. You can switch off the super cool graphic there. Um, and, I, I want, and we'll talk about it this way. So if you brought your Bible, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a little bit of just getting us set up. And I'm gonna, I have to cover so much. I'll never be able to cover everything I want to cover, and I will probably create more questions than I intend. Uh, but I'm okay with that. I just want to let you know where we're going to go because I want to give us enough time to respond today um, with everything. So anyway, um, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 if you want to follow along. If you want to follow along in your outline, you got one in your bulletin, you can pull that out and kind of follow along. But as you're doing that, let me, let me just kind of frame this up a little bit. Every summer I go, um, which is the worst time to do this, every summer, usually in July, sometime in August, we go to Texas. And um, people who are from Texas laugh because that's, the, that's when everybody in Texas tries to not be there. Um, and they still walk, people from Texas always walk around like their state is the greatest thing that ever happened to everything. People from Texas will tell you all the time how wonderful it is to be from Texas. And, you know, they're wrong. <laughs> it's just terrible. But especially in July, it's so hot. And they, there's two redeeming things about Texas. And one of them is that, um, well, one of them is that it's huge. I guess that's somewhat redemptive. But the other thing is that uh, they have really good food. And um, so every year we go, and my, my in-laws take us to uh, like an all-you-can-eat, you know, buffet thing. And, you know, really, there's no, there's no use in going to a buffet where you get one plate and one time through the whole thing. That's stupid. You, I mean, you go to a buffet, and it's like, huh, here we go. I mean, I'm going to, I'm actually, they're, they're going to actually end up, I'm going to earn whatever money back. They're going to pay me because I ate so much food here. That's how much food I'm going to eat here. Now, when I'm at this plate, when you know, all of you have been to a buffet, I'm assuming, at some point in your life, where you go through the line. And you're like, yes, I need a waffle right now at 3 in the afternoon or whatever time it is. I also need an enchilada. And I would also like some pasta salad. <laughs> I'd also like a regular salad. And, ooh, burritos. And, you know, it's like pretty soon you have this, ama- this insane amount of food. And then there's 14 kinds of breads with specialty butters. And you're like, yeah, I need that too. And so you have all of this food on your plate. And then you realize you can have more. So you go back. You're like, look at all this food. There's no way I cannot go back to have more food. Even though I'm already full, it doesn't matter. I'm at the buffet. I'm going to need someone to make me a custom crepe. And then I'm going to need an omelet to go with that crepe. And I'm also going to need some prime rib because that's what I always have with my omelets every morning. I mean, you just kind of start going crazy because you can, because it's all there. And we never eat like this at home. I mean, whatever limiter switch it is that we have when we're at home, like, I think I'm full now. It's gone at a buffet. It's like, it's there and I'm having it. I'm going to keep on going. Now, I do this... And every year, I go, every year I do this, I'm always like, you know what, I just need to eat a little bit, and I'll be fine, and then I'll take the kids outside, and they'll whatever. It's like, no. I, it's like, I, I, it's whatever it is that tells me stop eating, it's like, it's gone when I'm at a buffet. I know none of you are familiar with this phenomenon. But, uh, but this is what happens to me all the time. And I think for a lot of, for a lot of ways, this is the attitude of our world towards sex. Because it's there, because I can... I should just keep on going. There's an appetite there. And even if the appetite feels like it might be sort of full, I don't know if there'll be enough, so i got to keep on getting some more of whatever else is out there in the world, especially when it comes to sex. There are so many forms and modes and methods of like how sex is kind of directed to us. And I just want to make a note, too, before we go any further, too, that sex is not bad. I just want you to know. I mean, I don't think I made that point at all last week, and I'm like, that's kind of a, that's kind of a troublesome thing. Sex is not bad. I mean, I, I think that for a lot of us growing up in the church, you know, first of all, we have the sense that everything about sex is bad. The church is afraid to say the word. You know, like, we can't talk about it in here. 
This is a holy place, which is a totally ridiculous thing. But, you know, we can't talk about it. We're not sure who we can talk about it. If we talk about it, are we going to be branded if we don't talk? So, first of all, you would not be here without sex. That's good that you're here, right? We can all acknowledge that. That's good. Secondly, God invented it and he intended it. It's not like God was like, Adam and Eve, what are you guys doing? Oh, my gosh. Do you not realize I'm the Lord? This is crazy. I mean, this is, oh, gosh, what am I going to tell everybody? Sorry, angels, cover your eyes, you know. I mean, like, everything, he's all right with that stuff, okay? First. In fact, look at this. The first command in the Bible, this is what it says on your outline, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, first command in the Bible, be fruitful and increase in number. It's also the first amen in the Bible, too, right there. Guaranteed. It's not in the text, but you know what I mean, right? That people went, oh, my gosh, this is awesome, okay? And God is like, this is good. This is what I want you to do. I'm excited about that you guys get to do this, all right? Now, a lot of us have the impression that God is anti-sex, and that's just still not true. But like a lot of good gifts that God gives, anything that God gives with good intention, with good direction, can be misused for other purposes, can be redirected or repurposed. And the world has, for the most part, repurposed sex. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to this city called Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And I've been to Corinth. It's, just, it's, it's like this. It's just really, it's, I had to look up the word to make sure I said it right. It's on an isthmus. That's hard to say, so bear with me. But it's a little narrow strip of land connected, like there's the Peloponnesus, and then there's the whole rest of all of Greece. And so there's this little tiny strip of land. Now there's a canal there. But it's a seaport. So... It's a sailor town. It is like, you know what I'm talking I mean, it is like everything you could imagine that could go on in Corinth. You know, I mean, it is like happening there. You know, what happens in Corinth? You guys have all been there, obviously. Okay, now. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. It says this. I have the right, you say, I have the right to do anything, you say. I mean, he's quoting the people who are from Corinth. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. By the way, I should say, this is like the verse that you want to give to a high school kid before they go off to college, honestly. Like, hey, look, everything's available to you. You're about to walk into the buffet. Not everything's beneficial. This is just like the thing. You know, Paul's saying to these people, he's saying to this church, who says, hey, look, we know everything's permissible is another translation. We, we all believe everything's permissible. We've heard about this great thing about Jesus, which is this grace and forgiveness thing. And he's like, okay, great, you all say everything's permissible. Not everything's good. Not everything is beneficial. Not everything is the thing that you really want to really kind of be you know, into. And he says this, this really critical thing. He says, I will not be mastered by anything. And it raises the question about what is the definition of freedom? Is, definition, is the definition of freedom the freedom to do anything? I mean, I, I'm free. I can do, no one tells me to do I can do whatever I want. Is that freedom? Or is it freedom from something? In other words, I have no master. If I'm a slave to anything, even if it's my own desires, if it's things of my own choosing, then that's not freedom. And what Paul's saying here, the Apostle Paul's saying to these people is, Because you can do everything, that doesn't mean you're free. Because you have no master is what makes you free. Keeps on writing. Uh, Verse, uh, let's see, verse 13. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Now, let me just break this down a little bit. Food for the stomach. This is just their way of saying, my body has appetites. 
Those appetites ought to be fulfilled. I'm going after some stuff because I'm hungry. The buffet is out there. My body says go, and I'm like, I'm listening to my body. And he says, and then they go on to say this, and God will destroy them both. Now, there's this, there's this phenomenon in philosophy in, in this particular, it's a religious philosophy happening at this time. It's a philosophy called, or a religion, it's a sort of a branch of Christianity actually, called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is where, like, the, the root word of that is the word gnosis, where we get, like, the word, like, prognosis or diagnosis. It means a special knowledge. And to say, we can't go into too much detail about Gnosticism, except to say this. These are people who are trying to figure out, with a special knowledge, how to abandon the physical world, because the only thing that really matters is the, is the spiritual world. Meaning, the spirit matters, the physical world doesn't matter, and because the physical world doesn't matter, I can do anything I want to it. The primary goal of a Gnostic is to leave, to actually somehow in some way or another, fully live as someone connected only in the spirit and having total detachment from the physical body. Now, if you were with us last week, here's what, why this matters. We know that human beings live in the both-and world, that they are not only spirit and not only body, that there's this commingling of body and spirit in which human beings live. And so Paul's addressing their thought that there's like a spiritual realm and a, and a, and a physical realm and the never the tween shall meet. Now, we kind of have, you know, we think about this. We go, that's weird. Gnostics, they have this kind of weird addition to what Christianity is all about. They kind of have this weird departure. We would never have that. We don't, we don't really have that. Let me just give you a sense of how we do the same thing. We have a tendency to say from time to time, you, you, people will say this, you know, all the, you just, you, I'm sure you've had this conversation. I've actually probably had it myself, even though it's rooted in something not so good. We'll say things like, don't say that in church. We can't say those things in church. Save that language for the golf course, okay, where it belongs, or at work, right? But we can't say that in church. Can't talk about certain things here. There are certain things we can do at work because that's part of my physical life, my secular life. But my spiritual life looks like this. And I say spiritual things and I'm engaged in spiritual conversation, quote unquote, in my spiritual life. But in my not spiritual life, this physical life, this material life, it doesn't really matter what I talk about. But I can kind of keep both things separate so that my life is easier to manage. You know, at business, I talk about these things, and I'm allowed to say these things and get away with these things. I'm allowed to talk about, about other people this way. But at church, no, no, I don't talk that way. I don't, I'm not involved in those conversations. That's the, sort of a, at, least, at least one cut at a contemporary version of Gnosticism. Now, Paul's saying here, these people are kind of going, you know, all right, what exactly are we supposed to be doing here? Paul says it's not just that you, you know, because they're believing it's just bodies. It doesn't matter if I just have a body and I can do whatever I want to it because it doesn't matter. My spirit will be intact. And Paul's addressing this really, really closely, saying, no, no, you can't separate these things out. Look what he says in verse 13 again. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, what he's saying is because you are already a confluence, a commingling of spirit and body, the whole thing belongs to God, not just the spirit part. The whole thing belongs to God. And you have this vague term now. We kind of have this is kind of a fuzzy term for a lot of people. It's from sexual immorality. Like, what, what exactly does that mean? He said, you know, there's, the body's not meant for sexual immorality. Well, what, what does that mean? The word in Greek is the word porneia. I know none of you have heard of any kind of root words. I might go with that. You know, but it, it's, it's where we get the words, obviously, the pornography, 
This is where we get words like fornication. This, this is all the same root. And it falls into this category of sexual immorality. Now, I, I just want to tell you, because this is kind of a moving target about what exactly is sexual immorality, I got a lot of emails. I got more emails last week than I've ever gotten in terms of people going, I have questions about stuff. I have big questions about things. And I want to, you know, I, I want to give you a sense. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, but I want to give you a sense. Um, I, I printed out, I asked this one person if I could read their email and remove a couple things so I could say it. They said, oh, yeah, you can, you can read my email. Because I think this is a question a lot of people have in the room. Because they're saying, well, what's sexual immorality? I know what sexual, I know what sexual intercourse is, but what's sexual immorality? Where is how, how much, how, how big is that band until we get to that place, you know? And so here's a question I got. This is very funny. This is about sex. And I, I accidentally printed it on um, the printer that, you know, Bailey, who's our, elder, our interim children's pastor, was in her office. So I printed it on, like, a full-on certificate. So I just thought, oh, my gosh. <laughs> This would be so funny if someone got their certificate. You know, here's your dedicated. What well, this is kind of an inappropriate. I don't know what to do with this. Okay, so I have a very. This is a. This is like put a frame around this guy. Anyway, great question. Check this out. Hey, Pastor Jeff, I just had a quick random question. I was hoping you might be able to address either directly during or during your sex sermon next weekend. I hate to ask, <laughs> but I was just wondering your opinion of what base it is okay to go to if you're not married. There you go. Now you're with me. I feel like a silly schoolgirl asking this. My boyfriend and I have decided to wait until we're married. By the way, this person isn't like a high school age person, which I wouldn't answer this question anyways. I wouldn't be reading this anyways. But that's another conversation. I, I know what your answer probably is, but I was hoping for permission to play some baseball. <laughs> Just, <laughs> again, framing this thing. This is going to my office. Oh, I know. It's horrible. Uh, just wondering what your opinion and interpretation is on the matter. Thank you. Sorry. Awkward. Um, <laughs> now, this is, I mean, for our world has a constantly moving target on what sexual immorality is. Well, sex is fine as long as you're you know, in a loving relationship. Or is that what it means? Or is it just married? Is it married between man and woman? Is it, you know, like there's all, the, the target in the world is a little bit confusing. And people are trying to figure out what this looks like. Now, let me just tell you, like, it, let me just put it this way. If you're asking if it is, it probably is. Like, is, this, is it okay if we do this? Like, you know, is it like, can we, you know, we're, you know, talking, to, I'm not sure how the base path works anymore, but can we, can I like, can we do light petting, heavy petting? Can I go under the blouse, over the bra? Is that cool? Or can we, are we, what if we had only our pants on? Is that, our, I mean, like, look, I'm being totally specific. People are like, they're literally wrestling with these questions. Some of you are wrestling with these questions right now. I mean, I know it's like, ha, 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 who would ever ask that? And that's you. I mean, that's okay. I get that you're asking those questions. All right? The thing is that we're trying to figure out what is this kind of idea of sexual immorality. And I'll come back to this again a little later in the message. Hopefully we'll have time. I'm going to try to keep racing through here. Uh, verse 14. Paul continues, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now, there's this weird, Paul starts talking a little funky here. I mean, he starts getting a little weird. He starts talking about how your body is this kind of unity, like uniting with Jesus, and it's like, what? You know, because he's talking about sexual morality, then he's talking about uniting with Jesus, and there's a little bit of us that goes, uh, this, is fun- this is weird. I don't totally know what you're doing with that, okay? But here's what he says. He says there's a bodily resurrection. You know, Jesus, he's the guy who rose from the dead. Now, I realize some of you are like, I don't believe that. That's crazy. But what Paul's saying is Jesus didn't just spiritually rise from the dead. He's not just the spirit of Jesus rose from the dead. That he actually, his whole body rose. It wasn't like the disciples went to the tomb and went, oh, his, his body's there, but his spirit rose. 
His whole body, his, the body was gone. And what Paul's saying is, that same resurrection, ready for some bizarre stuff, is going to happen to us someday in some capacity. I don't know how that works. But what he's saying is, if the body didn't matter, then Jesus just could have risen from the dead by a spirit. Like, oh, there's his spirit floating away. He's saying your bodies matter. That's all part of God's huge, big, sometimes difficult to understand plan. Verse 15 again. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute uh, is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, again, what he's saying is, if the body was, if human beings were just physical, I'm saying it a different way, it probably wouldn't matter if you just went around uniting, quote unquote, with prostitutes or whomever else, because this is what people did in Corinth. In fact, there's a saying that says, it could be said in Corinth, I'm going to see if I get this right, that a husband ought to, make, ought to keep his wife pure, but if the occasion arises, he might need to go visit a harlot. Something along those lines. Like, people in this particular time are like, I got sexual needs, I got to make sure my wife stays pure, but because I have needs, I should have those fulfilled with other people. And Paul's saying, if it was just about bodies and not about the other part of our whole, who, how we're made up to be, then that wouldn't matter. But he's saying, you, as a body, are spirit and flesh, and you are not only united to each other in marriage, but you're united to Christ. Your whole body matters. There is sort of these two mystical unions here, one with Jesus and one with Christ. You know, human sex is this interesting deal. I mean, of course, it's interesting. You know, people are curious about sexuality. They start wondering about it, you know, in 6th, 7th, or 8th grade, start going, wow, I'm pretty curious about this. But there's some interesting things about sex. Human beings, you know, most of the time, and for most of the, it's, it's pretty common for human beings, God intended this to be a relational thing. There's no, there's no period that human beings have that we just call heat. There's no, like, like my, my, uh, my dog, who, by the way, was neutered when he was like a tiny little puppy, is running around our neighborhood, and there's another dog down the street, this, you know, really good-looking, you know, German Shepherd mix, Dixie. And Dixie comes running around, and my dog is like, yay, it's Dixie. And they start playing, and pretty soon my dog is going into full-on hump mode. And it's like, uh, Kirby, knock it off. Kirby, stop that. That's good. The kids are looking at me like, Dad, what's that? Ah, uh, they're wrestling. They just wrestle. It's hilarious when they wrestle like this. I don't... Kirby, get off, Kirby. I mean, it's like, but he can't even, he, he can't do anything. There's nothing happening there, but he's like, the motor is running, if you know what I mean, okay? And he can't stop himself. Human beings, not supposed to be like that. You don't just go, well, the motor's running. I got to go figure out what I'm supposed to do here, right? Human beings are intended to have, rela- it's, there's a reason why, e- even in sex, that there's generally human beings are having sex face-to-face because it's intended to be relational, It's intended to create unity and oneness. And when that doesn't happen, we make it just about something else. We become nothing different than my dog Kirby and the neighborhood German Shepherd. God intended sex to be relational. He intended it to be one that's uniting. And what Paul is saying is don't just make it something that's just physical. Don't take it and then go unite with a prostitute or anybody else for that matter. Because you're cheapening what God intended for sex. Uh, Let's see. um, I should say this as well, just as a side note. By the way. Um, I have so much to say. Um, husbands and wives, there is, more uni- there is more uniting when there is more sex. There is study after study will indicate, I mean, we'll just has proven this over and over again. Couples who have more sex, they're more united. End of story. In other words, sex is a 
thermometer. It tells you the temperature of like how, how everything's going in the marriage. But it's also a thermostat. In other words, it can set the temperature for how things are going in the marriage. When couples are having sex, the married couples are having sex, they are more united than if they're not. Look what Paul says. I just want to give you a quick little, this is, I think, on the back of your outline. I'm just going to, re- I gave you a little more than I'm going to read right now just for the interest of time, but I want to give you a little bit of what this looks like here. Starting in verse 2 in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, just jumping ahead of chapter. But since sexual immorality is occurring, meaning you guys in Corinth are kind of going a little crazy, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. I think it's interesting that Paul has to specify with his own wife, like not everybody else's wife. And each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. And, you know, I know, that, okay, speaking generalizations here, I realize I can't speak for, you know, every single person. I know there's exceptions. There's the asterisk. I know the guys are just like, see, honey, we're supposed to be having sex all the time. See, I won't deprive you. I will never deprive you. But you should be, you know, whatever. Okay, now, with me? Where was I? Okay. Uh, some of you are like, let's close. We're done. <laughs> That's all I needed. I'm good. We're out of here. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Meaning, I belong to you, you belong to me. We belong to each other. I give you, and husbands are like, you can have it, you can have my body. I have honed this thing for so long, my body is in terrific shape. Okay, right? You can, I yield it, right? Now, verse 5, do not deprive each other. Except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. This is very funny because I don't know anybody who's ever done this in the history of the church. But so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. You know, honey, I don't think, I, I don't think we can have sex. I'm just going to devote ourselves. Let's just pray instead. I've never heard of a guy do it. Maybe, and I know there's probably some people who have. <laughs> I've never met you. I just know that you might be out there. But here's what Paul says. Don't deprive each other unless you're stopping for a reason, like kind of like fasting. Like we need to focus on, you know, God, whatever that is. Like we're going to stop for a moment. So you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then look what he says at the end of verse 5. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We're really holy about praying, but I just motor is running. You know, I mean, there's that kind of, there's whatever. Paul's making these weird concessions. Because listen to what he's saying. On the one hand, human beings this commingling of body and of spirit, of, of animal and, as we talked about last week, not animal and not angel, this, co- this middle ground of those two things. Treat sex with great reverence. It's a great thing, and it's a very, you have a high value for it. And then he says in very practical terms, husbands and wives, don't deprive each other, because you can really undo what God intends to do in your marriage when you're not having sex. And then he says, you know, you should be having it because we don't want your sexual immorality to kind of go off on the rampage. So keep having sex. Yay, amen. People should be clapping and jumping out of their seats with joy for that. Okay? No one expected me to say that at church today. All right. Now, for single people. Single people have an interesting world. In the, and I would say probably the church has probably, for those of you who are single in here, the church has probably done a pretty poor job, if you're single, at making you feel like you're less than a second-class citizen or less, you know, I mean, we probably tell you in some way or another, implicitly or otherwise, You're wonderful when you're married. Right now, you're just not there. I think that's what the church has tended to say. And I just want you to hear very, very clearly from me. Even if I've been the culprit of in some way, you know, giving you that impression, I just want you to hear from the Bible about what is said about people who are single. First of all, Paul himself, who's writing what I'm about to read and writing right now to married people, is a single person. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. as like, I wish everybody could live like me. It's so good to be a single person. Jesus himself wasn't married. 
if you had to be a, if you had to be married to be a fully complete person, Jesus would not be a 100% human being then. I mean, what we talk about when we talk about Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. If you have to be married to be a full human being, then Jesus was not a full human being, which means everything we're reading now is totally not true. Here's what the Bible says. Listen to this. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, meaning 100% God lives in a 100% body. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Here's what this means. People who, the, the intended completion, the intended fullness of yourself isn't in another person. It's not that single people, and again, the world contributes to this myth a little bit too, that there is a one magical person out there for you that will make you a whole person. It's not true. The only, the only person who makes you a whole person is Jesus. And we are longing to find another person to make us a whole person. That means we're conti- continually, for the rest of our lives, going to be disappointed. Because you know what? That person is a human being who makes all kinds of ridiculous mistakes. You are a whole person, one who is in Jesus. Secondly, the odds as a single person are not in your favor. I do not want to paint a picture like here's six steps to like happy, you know, easy navigating in a world which is just clamoring for you to have more sex, who is trying to identi- help you identify yourself as a sexual person only, that your sexual desire defines who you are, that all this kind of, that, that is a difficult world to live in. And I do not want to create like any kind of sense that like it's just so easy. I know that it's not. I was, um, I, I want to just talk to you really quickly about roadkill. And by that I mean The Bachelor. Um, so I know this is like, you know, <laughs> you know, road, some of you are like, roadkill, what's that mean? You know, like roadkill, you can tell that an animal is up ahead on the road. It's been damaged. It's not moving. And you're like, that's going to be the most disgusting thing in the world. And as you drive by, you slow down and just take a good long look. <laughs> I regret doing that. But that's, you know, that's America's favorite roadkill right now is Bachelor. I want to read you this, this analysis. Um, this is really sharp analysis by someone who's not a, um, a Christian. And I just want you to catch the analysis here. I'm going to read a little bit, so bear with me here. This is um, what she says about The Bachelor. There may, be, there may be no show on television as twisted about sex as The Bachelor. ABC's long-running dating show, now in its 18th season, purports to find a man a wife, a mission in which it is only sporadically successful. Despite its failure rate, The Bachelor continues to present itself as a romantic, out to find a good man, a life partner, a soulmate, a true love, all while behaving like a pimp. Typically, The Bachelor's resemblance to an unusually public escort service is kept under wraps until late in the season, when The Bachelor has narrowed the field down to three suitors. They are then invited, or not invited, to spend the night with The Bachelor in a fantasy suite. An evening in a romantic, usually tropical location where the cameras will finally leave these two people alone to get up to whatever they want to get up to. Having one one off-camera sexual encounter with a person who may soon uh, give you a grapefruit-sized engagement ring seems like a good idea, but in practice... It means a man has sex with three women three evenings in a row and professes his deep romantic feelings to each one of these women, all of whom are fearful of behaving in a way he might not like. With one woman, Juan Pablo, this is The Bachelor, went much further than kissing. In a pretty scandalous turn of events in The Bachelor universe where sex always arrives in the penultimate episode, uh, always at the behest of the John, Claire, a 32-year-old high-strung hairstylist, is the woman Juan Pablo kissed first, and and they have barely stopped since. After receiving all this attention, Claire decided to show up at Juan Pablo's room at 4 a.m. and asked him to go swim in the ocean with her. He did, and then they had sex, or at least that's the only way to make sense of what followed. 
even though The Bachelor hewed to its strict policy of never being explicit, as if language alone can make a show demure. The next day, Claire gave a toast to finding love, being loved, and making love, only for Juan Pablo to take her aside and tell her that, I hope nobody knows. It was a little weird for me. I'm too fair with people. Maybe it wasn't right. I have a daughter. I don't want her to see what happens if she sees it. Claire, who thought she had sex with someone who wanted to have sex with her, was mortified and embarrassed. I knew when we were in the ocean that it was a mutual feeling. If he didn't think it was right, he shouldn't have done it. I would have respected that, she said to the camera, crying. Claire did exactly what the show and Juan Pablo purport to want women on the show to do. Be themselves, to do what they would do if the cameras weren't there, and to try to have genuine interactions. But because she ran afoul of the, sh of the show's selectively Victorian sensibility and did not leave decisions about when to have sex on the television show to the show or to Juan Pablo, she basically got slut-shamed by both. At her own expense, Claire exposed the bachelor's sexual ethos, which is that the women are supposed to be relatively innocent and chaste up until the moment when the man calls on them to stop being so. If Claire had bided her time and waited however many episodes until Juan Pablo invited her into his fantasy suite, she would have been celebrated as a woman making herself, willing to make herself vulnerable for love. Instead, she got the easy woman edit and a scolding about sexual propriety. And it may be hard out there for a pimp, but it's way harder for a bachelorette. I think there's, the world is so conflicted about sex. The bachelor's a perfect indicator of that. On the one hand, the world says, there's the buffet, have as much as you want, and when you think you've had enough, have some more. But on the other hand, what it seems to be saying is, but you kind of have to bury it a little bit. You kind of have to be a little bit secretive, and there's some subtle rules that govern it. And those rules even change ever so often. They're so confusing. I think, as I'm watching, you know, just reading this analysis, I was thinking, what's the most dignifying thing that this, that, you know, The Bachelor does here? Does he hold to this show's really weird, bizarre ethic? Or does he say to everybody, right or wrong, he had sex with her, and he goes, you guys, I've had sex with Claire, and I want to be with Claire. Show's over. Or he says, oh, no, 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 I'm just not totally sure. I want to make sure I have sexual chemistry with all the other people here before I make a decision. Do you have a high view? I mean, the show either has to have a high view of sex, meaning that it's really important and it really matters and it's really critical, or it has to have an incredibly low view of sex. But, but the problem is that show has a both. And I think for single people, you live in the world of the both. And it is so incredibly difficult for you. Married people, you live in the world of the both, too. Do we have a high view of sex or do we have a low view of sex? God intended it, designed it, desired it, and the best protection for all of this kind of the feeling that Claire is having that we got, even though it's not a perfect protection, is marriage. And so you can either have a high view of sex or you can have a low view of sex. I read an article this week in, a, in, a, in Business Insider. I was doing tons of research on, in Business Insider. It was, a, it was an article about um, a guy in New York, in Brooklyn, who, has, who hosts parties, uh, sex parties for people of uh, generally about 150 people or so. And there's virtually no restriction. And he, he just writes it. I, the, the, the quote is, it's really crass, but it's worth getting, getting a pretty clear imp impression of what, like, a low view of sex is. And I actually, to be honest, I actually... I appreciate that he's, he's at least honest. Here's what he says. Unlike other sometimes gender or sexuality exclusive parties, Sparks, his name's Mr. Sparks, says there are people who may identify as gay, straight, bisexual, queer, or even awesome sexual. I don't know what awesome sexual is. Some of you husbands just elbowed your wives like, that's probably me. <laughs> There's also a mix of professionals who attend like lawyers, doctors, and teachers. Everyone's accepted as long as they're 18 years old. Now listen to this quote here. He says, we're a bunch of adults 
And we've come together because we're all slutty and want to rub our genitals against each other in as many extreme ways as possible. That's funny. You get to laugh about it. If you can't laugh about sex, you're missing out. Sex should not be hyper-serious. It's really funny. Now, I would constitute a pretty low view of sex, but at least he's consistent. I think we live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with all kinds of different messages about sex. There's a reason why so many of us are so confused and so conflicted. There is such a moving target on sex. I, I want to, man, we're running out of time. Um, shoot, how am I going to, I'm going to skip to some stuff here. Um, uh, let's just go to 1 Corinthians 6, 18. So here's what Paul says. He says to the church here in 1 Corinthians 6, I want to give us a chance to respond, so I want to make sure we have time. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Now, I would say that's, that's, like really clear, practical advice. But how do, how do we do that? I mean, how are we supposed to really do this? This is kind of a challenging idea. Flee from porneia is really what's being said there. This is what this means. How do you flee? He says this, continuing on. Uh, All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Meaning, there are lots of things we can do But sex has this weird deal, probably because it's such a linking of so many different things, because because of all of what it means, not only does it commit, is is it a damage done to someone else when we commit an act of sexual immorality, but it does something to our soul. There is something more powerful, there's something mystical in some way or another, I don't know how to explain it, about sex. It is not just a biological function. Something happens to human beings in sexuality And I I just want you to get the sense here that there's something else bigger about sex. Again, what constitutes sexual morality? This is, again, that baseball question. How much, you know, how much baseball can I play is really the question people want to know. How do I actually flee? Now, remember, the focal point of all of this, you know, well, I should should do this. Let Let me back up. When Jesus talks about, over and over again, when he's talking about people and their own behaviors, he's always talking about, first and foremost, their heart. First and foremost. Meaning that out of our heart should flow all of these right behaviors, as you kind of saw in the diagram earlier. Our identity. God shapes our identity. Out of our identity comes our behavior. Now, it doesn't mean then that whatever I do doesn't matter as long as my heart's in the right place. That's not true. <laughs> I really, my heart's really in the right place, but I keep doing these things. No, no, no. Your heart's not in the right place then, is what Jesus would say. But he starts at the heart. It's really important that you catch this. And he has this conversation with, um, you know, he's, he's in this, his most famous speech called the Sermon on the Mount. And he's having this conversation with a, a bunch of people on this hillside. And he, he gives them this picture of what it looks like to flee from sexual immorality. And it's like pretty extreme. Check this out. Matthew 5, 28 says this. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I know that, you know, so just to give you a sense here. Generally, and this, is, this, this content is directed at men, just to let you know. So again, I'm speaking in general terms here. So there are exceptions. Women, if you want to include yourself in this great. You probably might be. I remember I was, I was reading a marriage book when my wife and I were going through counseling stuff and talking about stuff. And I was reading this one book and it was like, it was amazing to me. Guys, this is a total revelation. You'll never, you'll, you won't believe this. No matter how, like the, this, the, um, the writing says that the, the woman's talking about how she saw some famous movie star on TV with a shirt off or whatever. And the guy was like, this kind of fires you up, doesn't it? You know? And she's like, no. He's like, what, he, that's the guy. That's like, you know, that's Brad Pitt or whoever it was. And she was like, I know. He's really, he's really, I mean, he is really sexy. And, she's, and he's like, I know, that's what you mean, right? And she goes, no, no, no. How, 
It doesn't matter how incredibly physically built that, it does not necessarily link me to have wanting to have sex with him. And guys are like, what? If there's a really hot looking person, which is you, of course, dear wife, it's you, the hottest, it's you, nobody else. But if it's you, because you, you're so hot, you know, all I can think is she's hot and I want to have sex with her. But you don't have that same. So when you see me, you don't think super hot, got to have sex with her? No. Why am I trying? Why am I trying to get abs? It doesn't matter. Right. I mean, it's great. I want you to be look good. But it just, those two things, you looking good and sex do not equal to each other. And I was like, what? What world do we live in? Right? Okay, so guys, now you know. Ask your wife later. Is he serious? He's serious. Okay. Now, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with him in his own heart. Meaning, guys, women, I should let you know about this, about guys, in case you didn't already know. This is the thing guys wrestle with. It's not just noticing another woman, like, oh, there's a pretty woman over there. I don't want to have sex with her. It's like, there's a little bit, that t- if, like, lust is that kind of, wow, I wonder what could happen if we, oh, my gosh, I just, oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not okay. Like, that, that's what guys do all the time. And only guys, really, this is why it's super important, guys, if you, this is something you have, like, a more significant struggle with, that you're around other guys, because other guys understand this. Here's what he says, he keeps on going. Verse 29, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> Left eye, that's fine. You just, you know, wear a patch and just walk around at the beach. You know, it's fine. <laughs> Left eye's fine. <laughs> it's better for you to lose one part of your body than be thrown into hell. <laughs> oh, okay, Jesus. Seriously, lighten up. And verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Oh, my gosh. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And that's Jesus' encouraging words to guys. <laughs> now, I, I want to be really clear, and I want to still give us a chance to respond here. Gosh, uh, okay. Now, clearly this is an exaggeration for purposes of making a point, too. There's two parts to this. There's a very practical part of this, and there's also a futility to this, and I want to talk about both. One is this. First of all, there's an early church father, a guy named Origen, O-R-G-E-N, not I-N, who actually castrated himself trying to make this like, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. And this is like a really smart church thinker guy. He was like, oh, no, that's, that's what we got to do? And he really tried, he was like, I just, I'd rather, and there's something about that that's like not what God intends, okay? So some of you are like, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. No, okay? There's this real practical part, though, that I want you to understand, that what Jesus is saying is you're going to have to be pretty serious about not chasing down things that your heart wants. That means then, I'm just speaking to guys, women, it might look different for you. I can, I, you don't have time to really go to too much of this. But guys, if you have an issue in which your eye is constantly wandering to things like pornography, let's just put it that way. It's not just like, oh, I got to have someone make sure my desktop computer at work is like monitoring stuff. You walk around with a computer. It's called a cell phone. You can look at stuff. If you can't be alone, you can't be trusted at the buffet with a cell phone, with a smartphone, you're going to either have to lock your internet access and give the password to your wife or someone else, or you're going to have to not have a smartphone. That's cutting your own hand off and saying, okay, this isn't, some, this isn't an appetite I'm allowed to continue to pursue. It may be that there's some part of you that says, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in conversations with people. 
at work who consistently bring some stuff up. These are people who talk about things. This includes women as well. But you're part of conversations that seem a little bit, little bit kind of loose in the turns. And you're like, I'm not sure I should be talking about that stuff, but they're at work and I should talk. Well, got to find a way to excuse yourself maybe. Maybe it's the TV shows. Maybe it's not the explicit, really, TV MA kind of shows that you're watching. But maybe there's some shows that just kind of allow for a permission to think about things differently in your own life, men and women, about how sexuality should be treated. Maybe there's some extreme measures that say, okay, I'm not, we're, we're going to cancel our cable. We don't need cable TV anymore. How many home and garden channels do I need anyways? That's all I watch, just the home and garden channel. Okay, right? You know, whatever it is. But there's also this intentional futility in the language. The practical stuff is do what you got to do. The other part is that it's futile. And here's why. If this verse, if, if, if cutting off your own arm and gouging out your right eye could insulate men from lusting, there would be so many one-legged, one-armed men in the world. But Jesus is saying, even if you were to do that, the critical thing would still be left, which is the, your own heart, would, which is the source. Mark, the book of Mark even tells us, out of, the, out of the heart comes every evil desire. Meaning, the issue still has to be how you actually view sexuality, how you view yourself, how you view your identity, how Christ is shaping you. That's the most critical thing so that your behaviors are then changed. It isn't just about cutting off your arm or gouging out your eye. It's about really what God wants to do in your own heart. And it is God who restores broken hearts. It's God who restores people who have wandered down a road that is not okay in terms of what we call in the bigger context of sexual morality. God restores people to that. He restores people to himself, remaking them, making them new. Now, why the baseball question? What base can I go to? How much is okay? What's okay? Let me just tell you. That's a worrisome question for me as a pastor. Because what it's saying is, I just, I, I need, it's saying I've already crossed the line, and I want to know if it's okay. I want to know how much sexual gratification I can have outside of marriage. I want to know, I have these desires, how much of them can I fulfill? And if I'm asking that question, I'm probably already farther along that road than I want to be. So we have to talk really, shoot, really briefly about guardrails. I'll just say this, I was going to draw it, but... It's a really good drawing. Just imagine it. Some of us have this sense of when we talk about a guardrail, okay, like if you imagine you're on a mountain road and you're just, you're moving down this road and you're moving as fast as you can on, on a car. Some of, no, as you're driving down the road, none of us think to ourselves, you know, I wonder how hard I could hit that rail. I mean, how long can I drive against that rail before I go careening off of the cliff? I want to see how close I can get so that I, if I fall, you know, I just want to see what it look, how, how bad of a disaster would it be if I really just rammed into this, this, this guardrail to protect me from, you know, falling off this cliff. Nobody drives like that. The guardrails are there so that in, there's, in a moment when there is a lapse of something, there's a slippery spot on the road, there's some kind of disaster, that whatever it might be, they protect you from falling off. But they're designed in such a way to protect you should you need them. They're not designed to be constantly rammed up, like your car isn't designed to like lose a mirror and lose a fender on everywhere you're going around every turn. In your life, you have to decide, and I can't decide them for you about how to live in such a way that you do not utilize the guardrails as the way you steer your car. You know, like in Autopia at Disneyland? Oh, my gosh. Like, right, my, my daughter loves that ride. It is like, I need to go visit the chiropractor after that thing. She just lets it just go bam, 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 back and forth on that rail. And it's like, this is the worst thing in the world. This, isn't this fun, Molly? Oh, yeah, I love this. You know, it's like, this is the worst thing in the world. So I have to kind of help her, like, because I can't take it anymore. Let me, do, let me have a turn here real quick. Let me just see how you did. Kind of put it right down the middle. This is the intention for your life. It is to live in such a way that you are not constantly being battered against something. 
The more sexual intimacy you share with someone who is not your spouse, as we talked about last week, the more potential damage there is for you in your relationship future. Sex is intended as best as it can be, as good as a marriage or as bad as a marriage can be, for marriage. This is the best institution that God has created for people to be vulnerable with each other, to be fully naked with each other in their life, in their actual physical nakedness. Everything else has potential damaging effects. Paul says, the very end of your message, this is this. Do you not know, this is verse 19, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Last thing, I'll leave you with this and we'll pray. I want us to respond, so we'll do this quickly. People will ask a question about the quote-unquote baseball question, which is a really great question. It's a question, I'm, it's not the first time I've gotten that kind of question, is this. I want you to think about it in these terms. I want you to imagine your, your best friend, just someone that you trust deeply, good friend of yours. And I want you to imagine going to this person. If this is true, if this is, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what I want you to pay attention to. If you're not, just pay attention. This is what people who follow Jesus would look for. But I want you to imagine your best, your best friend, and you just would say to them, how many times, how, how many times can I sort of, you know, I don't know, kind of violate our friendship before you decide you don't want to be my friend? How close can I get in some way or another to sort of damaging, messing with, kind of, you know, doing some stuff with you until you kind of go, oh, we're done being friends? And I think in some ways, and again, I don't want to create a huge mountain of guilt here. I just want you to understand. I think in some ways we're asking the same question. God, how much can I get away with before you decide you don't really, you're not really excited about that? No. The upside of everything is that God restores, that God forgives. You do not have to get your right behavior first before you come to God. It is always come to God first and let him straighten out everything else. Always. But if you're serious about following Jesus, then what you're asking is, how much can I get away with and still everything be okay? We don't want that for our own kids. God certainly doesn't want that for us as well. But God is faithful to restore us as well. We so ran out of time. Let's pray together. Um, I don't know how we're going to do our response. We'll have to just close with one song. So we'll bring a band up. Let's pray. Jesus, we have so many questions. I have probably two more hours of content, and I know everybody wants to get out of here. They feel awkward enough as it is. But, Lord, we are so grateful that you are a God who restores. We know that there are so many things and so many different wounds and so many different stories that are in this room. Jesus, we're longing to be people who pursue you with integrity and with honesty. We're longing to be people who want and desire intimacy and true companionship. Father, help us to find that in our friendships. Help us to find that in you. Help us to recognize that in every relationship it's a gift and it's a challenge and it's a struggle. Father, I know that there are people in this room who have been overwhelmed by the world and its confusing messages. I know that there are people in this room who have been overwhelmed and felt condemned by the church and its confusing messages from time to time. Father, I know that we're just barely on the tip of the iceberg with this. Father, might this be a place where people could continue to ask questions, to seek you, and to follow you. And Father, might we sing as a response today, knowing, God, that you restore and that it is you who makes us whole. Father, we receive this, um, your words of encouragement and believe, Father, that you want to make us new. And so, Jesus, for some of us, we'll need to come forward and receive prayer. There'll be prayer people up in front. Others of us will just sing, and then I'll close us out in just a moment or two uh, with, this, with this service. So, um, it's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's, let's all stand together and sing, and then I'll, I'll